Welcome to the BBB National Programs podcast, Better Series, where we will explore top-of-mind topics and self-regulation with business and industry leaders. Together, we seek to understand the leading trends and innovations that continue to push the envelope in today's marketplace. Thank you for joining us today on the Better Series podcast. I'm James Lee. When was the last time you used cash for a major purchase? Like, oh, say, a new pair of shoes. How about dinner for two at a restaurant? What about just a good old-fashioned cup of joe? Well, there's a good chance it's been a while. Researchers have been following the trend toward a less cash society for years, documenting the threshold where people switch from currency to a payment card and how businesses make the decision to go cashless. The first universal credit card, the Diners Club card, was issued 70 years ago, and in that time, the ratio of cash to cashless payments has changed from 100% to zero in favor of cash to 70-30 split, with 30 being currency. But how much lower can we go when it comes to literally passing the buck? What do businesses gain, and what are the risks? Dr. Shelley Santana is an assistant professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School, a former executive at a global financial institution, and the author of the Harvard Business Review article, Is the U.S. on its way to becoming a cashless society? Dr. Santana, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you've already asked the question, is the U.S. becoming a cashless society? So let's start by defining what would be a cashless society. Yeah, this is a great question, and it's one that you would think there'd be a universal response to, but there actually really isn't. The standard for most people is Sweden, where about 80% of all of their transactions occur digitally. So that means 20% of transactions and an even smaller amount of that in terms of magnitude are conducted in cash. So they're probably one of the economies that's really at the forefront of going cashless. What has been the barriers that they found in their experience? Because there's always there's always good sides, there's downsides, upsides. What, what were the barriers? Generational? Technology? What? Yeah, there's been a few. So um, one is definitely generational. So, um, you know, as a lot of these economies and a lot of countries around the world have a younger and younger population, it's much easier to move to a digital economy and to become cashless because so many of those citizens are digitally native citizens. So I know for my sons, I have two teenage sons, you know, all of their transactions, their whole lives occur on their phones. And so the concept of actually having paper money that they carry around with is is quite burdensome to them, actually. Um, And so when you have um, economies that are have a much older population, and maybe aren't as comfortable using technology, particularly technology for something as sensitive and important as banking and finances, that can definitely be a barrier. Um, The second barrier that you see when economies try to move in a more cashless direction is a barrier for people who don't actually have a bank account. So this is the unbanked or underbanked population where people either don't have access to traditional banking institutions Or they do, but they still rely on non-traditional financial institutions for some parts of their financial lives. Let's call those cash checking or payday loans or things like that. So there's unbanked and underbanked people who really are not part of the full digital economy who risk being marginalized if we move in a direction where everything becomes cashless. And then there's a third group of people 
who really have privacy concerns. And so if you begin to put all of your transactions on a card, then there's a digital footprint for everything that you've purchased ever. Um, And some consumers are understandably very uncomfortable with that. And they're also uncomfortable with the idea of if all of my transactions then become aggregated into a big database of a financial institution, and that database then is hacked or compromised somehow, then all of my financial uh, transactions in my financial footprint becomes compromised. So those are some of the barriers to adoption that you typically see when uh, economies try and move in a more cashless direction. Okay, let's, let's start walking through theirs, but bef- before we do, uh, let's establish how is cash used today? Uh, in your in your article in the Harvard Business Review, you you, you outlined how the the typical transaction that we use cash has gotten smaller and smaller over time. So we obviously we used to use cash for everything, but by today, what do we use cash for? Yeah, cash is typically used for low dollar transactions. And low dollar, um, the definition of low dollar has declined dramatically over time. There was a time about 20 years ago where like $25 or so was the threshold. um, And that's declined steadily till about $5 now. And the reason for that decline is a, is a number of reasons. One is that the proliferation of credit and debit cards is much broader now than it was um, a few decades ago. And when credit cards first came out, I remember when I was young and credit cards came out, credit cards were something to be used for big ticket items and emergencies only. So it was really this thing that you kept in your wallet, like break in case of emergency. It was really not something intended to be used for everyday purchases. And then the credit card companies actually started launching campaigns called Everyday Spend, trying to get consumers to use credit cards, not just for big ticket items like a plane ticket, but also for running to the drugstore and picking up you know, a gallon of milk. So that, that threshold in which people are willing to use credit cards has gone down over time. And really what you're seeing is that, you know, somewhere between five and nine dollars is where cash is the most prevalent form of currency that's used. And that's commonly used for things like tips for wait staff, um, services that you might get like a manicure or getting your hair done, some things like that, um, paying a babysitter, paying your kids allowance, sort of smaller transaction items like that. So Let's start working through the, your barriers you outlined. So I'm part of the, I'll call it the Star Trek generation. <laughs> um, and, and my dad you know, grew up during the Depression. Right. And so he's part of the greatest generation. And I only saw the benefits of a cashless society. There was no cash on the Starship Enterprise. Nobody ever, you know, when, when they when they went into the into the lounge or to the to um, the cafeteria, there was no handing off money or any place on any planet. Uh, so I only saw the benefits. My dad, though, having lived through the Great Depression, only saw the negatives to this argument he and I always had about why do we need cash. You've looked at both sides of that. So what are the upsides and downsides based on the, the, the generation, d- generational differences? Will we ever be able to pull the older generation into this kind of, this kind of uh, uh, scheme? Or would we ever be able to pull the younger generation back up to cash? And should we try either one of those? 
Um, so I think there's definitely pros and cons to, to moving towards a less cash society. I don't know that we'll ever get to the point where it's 100% cashless, where there is no cash circulating in the economy at all. Um, but I, I can imagine a world where it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the transactions. And in terms of getting older generations to embrace the convenience of having a digital economy, I would really point to that as sort of number one reason. It's really convenient and really easy to pay by credit card, debit card, and or a mobile wallet. So instead of always having to go to the bank, um, get money out of the bank, either use an ATM, depending on how old school you are, you might actually go in and still talk to the teller um, and withdraw money from the bank. There's a lot of friction in that process. And so if you can get people to understand that all of that can still take place, but within you know fractions of a second, when you're standing at the point of sale or you're ordering something online or you're using your phone or, or uh, transacting on an app, I think that's a huge advantage for people. The second thing that's really advantageous about um, digital versus physical cash is the safety and security. So yes, there are there's a different type of safety and security that you get with um, cash versus digital. So there's not going to be, for example, a security breach or someone hacking your account if you've got cash in your wallet. Um, but you could run the risk of losing that money uh, or unfortunately, you know, theft and robbery is much higher when you have high amounts of cash either on your person or if you're a small business owner in particular, if there's large amounts of cash on premises. So the safety and security that is accompanied with using digital forms of payment, whether that's a credit card or a debit card or a mobile wallet, is something that I would also point to for um, older generations. In terms of having younger people embrace cash, I think one of the things that's most helpful in understanding the value of money um, is actually transacting in cash for a while. And there's lots and lots of research in what's called mental accounting and behavioral, uh, behavioral economics that talks about how when we have to depart with cash, that it's psychologically painful. And it's actually referred to as the pain of payment. And it's so salient that you're parting with money that it really gets you to think about what you're spending your money on and it changes the way that you spend your money and how much of it you spend. So if you can develop those kind of good discipline habits in the context and the domain of cash, then hopefully that will carry over when you transition into a more digital economy and you use credit cards and, and debit cards and mobile wallets. Have mobile wallets advanced this trend toward less cash or is it just another it's just another form of payment um so i it has definitely advanced this trend towards less cash and i'll tell you the context that i see it most um accelerating in is in entertainment and stadiums and theaters where there are concerts etc so it used to be that once you went to a football game i'm a huge football fan so once you went to a football game um, and you were sitting at your seat if you wanted to get a soda or you wanted to have a hot dog, it was typically, um, you know, you passed your $20 bill down the row, someone paid the vendor, and then you got your change and your hot dog passed all the way back. Um, now what they're doing is a lot of the stadiums have apps. A lot of those, they're called hawkers. A lot of the hawkers 
have mobile credit card readers on their belts. So now you've sort of distributed all of that standing in line or all of that transferring of cash up and down the aisle to an individual seat. And you can order your hot dog, have it delivered to your seat, pay for either within the app um, or pay for it with a credit card or your Apple Pay and then be on your way. So I think stadiums in particular are at the forefront of actually pushing a lot of this digital payment in mobile wallets because their biggest concern, one of their biggest concerns is actually having fans standing in line and not enjoying the show that they came to see, whether that's a sporting event or a concert. The other issue uh, you mentioned a moment ago was around privacy and security. So when I was prepping for this, I had a friend who raised that very issue that they, they sort of lamented the fact that they're, that cash is the last bastion of an anonymity. So when I pay for cash, the store may know that their inventory has gone down by one, but they don't know who bought it and they don't know where it's going or any of the other information that comes with um, a digital transaction. Um, is that something that is is a real impact and will that continue to be an impact over time or is that sort of my friend just being a curmudgeon? No, I think your friend is really onto something. There are people Um, And it's not a a small number of people who are really concerned with the loss of anonymity when you start putting all of your transactions on a card. And, you know, I'm a professor, I'm around students all the time, and there's a lot of concern among students and younger people today about their privacy. And a lot of it has to do with platforms like Facebook and Google and Amazon and, and what these sort of large tech organizations know about you. And I have to remind them that their credit card company knows an awful lot about them (laughs) just just by tracing the pattern of their purchasing. And so once people start to think about that, um, you know, I remind them that what your credit card company knows about you is big data. It was big data before big data became cool. And so the credit card companies know a tremendous amount about consumers. Um, And if you just think about it from almost like an anthropological standpoint, and if you could just see what someone is purchasing all the time, you can begin to really gain some significant insight into that individual. And whether that's good or bad, I think is up for debate. Um, We'd like to think that that's very good because what it allows for on the good side is it allows for much more personalization when it comes to advertising or recommending products or things like that to you. But there's definitely a downside in terms of loss of privacy. The other issue you mentioned was the unbanked and underbanked. And there have been a number of cities. I don't think any state has looked at it yet. You you may know differently, but uh, certainly a number of cities, including Washington, D.C., has looked at this issue of retailers and restaurants wanting to go to an all-cashless operation. And those municipalities have have basically said no. Um, And the reason was it denies equal access uh, to everybody in the economy to that that, that businesses, goods, and services. Is, Is that something that you think we will see more of? Is there another way of handling this without going to government regulations? And, and particularly given the circumstances we are in as we're, as we're speaking today, where all of us are working remotely and there's a public health emergency, 
is there an argument to be made that restricting cash every now and then can actually be a good thing? Yeah, so those are two really important and big questions, and so I'm going to tackle them separately, if that's okay. Go right the ahead. First question, the first question is about um, including unbanked and underbanked people in a cashless economy, in a cashless society. And you're right, there have been a lot of municipalities and the state of New Jersey who have actually banned um, cashless merchants uh, in their domain. And the reason is because it marginalizes a segment of society. And it's not an insignificant segment. I mean, the unbanked segment in the U.S. is around 7 to 8% of the population. The underbanked is more like 18%. So if you take those two together, um, that's like 25% of, of the U.S. population. That's one out of every four potential consumers. So it's not a small number. What I would say, you know, one of the most creative solutions that I've seen in this regard is actually at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. So they announced last summer that they were going to go cashless for every event that was being held um, at the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So, you know, all of the soccer games, the professional soccer games, all of the home games for the Atlanta Falcons, every concert They were actually supposed to host uh, the Final Four for March Madness this year. Obviously, that's been canceled. And when they looked at their data, they had about 50% of their customers were still paying by cash, which is a huge amount to actually um, say we're no longer accepting cash. So they did a number of things that I thought were really clever. First of all, they previewed the change and they overly communicated so that was number one. There was so that the chance of a customer showing up at the stadium and being caught off guard um, was really, really low. The second thing that they did is that in the off chance that that actually did happen and someone came to the stadium and didn't know about this policy, I mean, they're hosting soccer games, right? So you can imagine someone coming in from another country and they're going to see Mexico play Argentina at the stadium and they have no idea that this stadium is cashless. They installed a number of um, cash-to-card kiosks around the stadium, or what they refer to colloquially as reverse ATMs, where uh, a customer can put a $20 bill into the ATM and they get a $20 stored value card uh, Visa branded in return that they can use not only in the stadium, but they can use anywhere that Visa is accepted. And that way, I think, is a very clever solution to really embracing and allowing everyone to participate in a cashless environment um, without penalizing anyone. So that's something that I really would encourage uh, lawmakers and public policy people to really think about. And also the banks and the uh, banking institutions. Is there a way that we can build a bridge between unbanked and underbanked people in a cashless and more digital economy, as opposed to continuing to insist that uh, merchants accept cash as a form of payment? So that's number one. The second uh, part of your question was really interesting, and it's a huge question that has to do with uh, coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic that's occurring. And now that everyone's been pushed um, into their homes and we have a lot of stay in place requests and mandates, the digital economy is taking off. And for people who are unbanked and underbanked, this could be a real challenge for them because, you know, if you don't have access to credit cards, it's really difficult for you to get anything done 
um, while also keeping social distance. So that's another argument for like, let's figure out a way to build a bridge between these communities and the digital economy. In terms of um, a lot of the a lot of the essential services that are still allowed to remain open, you have to use some sort of digital means of payment in a lot of these. So, for example, there's a salad chain, Sweetgreen, um, where they've been at the forefront of cashless for a long time. But now, like, you can no longer even go into their stores and order in person. You have to order through the app. Um, they will let you know through the app when your order is ready. And when you open the door, the orders are actually all lined up on a on a table with your name on it so that you open the door, you do a grab and go, and you just leave. Again, that's for two things. One is keeping social distance, and the other is minimizing the exchange of cash and money um, between people just in case that we discover that you know that's another way for people to be sharing germs across one another. Dr. Shelley Santana of the Harvard Business School, thank you for joining us today and thank you for sharing all of your insight with us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. Have a great day. And thank you for listening to the BBB National Programs Better Series. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on our website, bbbprograms.org, then click on the podcast tab. You'll find all of our episodes there where you can listen on your Apple Podcast app or your favorite streaming platform. You just enjoyed the Better Series podcast. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To learn more about our other shows, visit betterbusiness.blueberry.com. That's betterbusiness.blubrry.com. Follow us on Twitter at BBB underscore NTL programs. Send your comments and ideas to podcast at bbbnp.org. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB National Programs or its affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Blueberry's Terms of Service.